Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 17 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. John William Cooper was born on September 3, 1944, in Milford Haven, a town located in the southwest of Wales. At 15, he left school, initially training in carpentry and upholstery, and later finding work as a farmer's labourer. A few months before his 22nd birthday, on July 11, 1966, John married Patricia, his long-term partner who he had known since childhood. The couple would have two children a boy called Adrian, and a girl, Teresa. In 1978, while working at the Gulf Oil Refinery in Milford Haven, John won £90,000 and a new £4,000 Austin Princess luxury saloon car in a spot-the-ball competition. In the game, a player has to guess the exact position of a removed ball from a photograph of a sporting action shot. The traditional promotion used to frequently appear in newspapers and was most often associated with football. John reportedly took his wife Patricia on holiday to America and shared a portion of his fortune with family members. With his newfound wealth, he decided to quit his job at the oil refinery. He set up a family-run small holding where he grew barley and his wife bred horses. John carried out work for some local farmers and the family purchased a property that overlooked Hazel Beach near the seaside town of Neeland. After they moved, Patricia was injured in a horse riding accident and was unable to work, so the family moved to St Mary's Park in Jordanston where they lived for much of the 1980s and 1990s. Their son and daughter grew up and had children of their own. During the early 90s, their granddaughter contracted meningitis 
so John and Patricia spent the following years taking her to and from medical appointments while her parents were at work. From the outside, there was nothing extraordinary about John William Cooper. He was sociable, he had hobbies, he acted as an official at local darts tournaments, and he was also a member of the Milford Haven Sea Angling Club. During May 1989, he even recorded an appearance on Bullseye. Bullseye was a popular UK darts TV show that ran between 1981 and 1995. The prizes ranged from luxury holidays to a cuddly toy of the show's mascot, Bully, a large dart-throwing, clothes-wearing brown bull. John Cooper was an unassuming man. He claimed to suffer from a frozen shoulder and near-debilitating arthritis. After a handful of bad business decisions, the family's winnings had all but dried up and John eventually gambled away what was left. But John was living a double life. Low on funds, he decided the best way to make ends meet was to use the countryside to his advantage. At night, he would sneak through the hedgerows onto the properties of unsuspecting locals. A lover of the great outdoors and a big fan of survivalist programs on television, John would break into houses in the middle of the night, fleeing to the adjoining fields and pathways. The valuables he'd stolen were hidden away from his wife in a locked safe. It was reported he would burn the stolen jewellery on a bonfire in his back garden to identify any metal or precious stones. The burglaries had become so frequent that the local authorities assembled a task force under the code name Operation Huntsman to capture the man responsible, though police were no further forward with catching the assailant and John's crime spree continued. It wasn't until January 21st, 1998 that he was arrested after a robbery in the village of Sardis in Pembrokeshire. John's actions had been escalating. Armed with a shotgun and a balaclava masking his face, he broke into a home and tied up the occupant, Sheila Clark. John fled but was later captured by police. After a search of his home, police officers found numerous items of jewellery, clothing and well over 500 sets of door keys all souvenirs from his crimes. On December 10th, 1998, John William Cooper was tried and convicted on 30 counts of burglary and robbery and sentenced to a total of 16 years in prison. He would serve just over 11 years before he was released at the beginning of 2009, but after only a few months of freedom, he was again arrested on May 13th while out buying a newspaper. This time, the charge was murder. On December 22nd, 1985, a man armed with a shotgun broke into Scoverston Manor in Pembrokeshire. The home belonged to brother and sister Richard and Helen Thomas. The wealthy siblings who were in their 50s lived together in the manor and frequently employed locals to carry out repairs. As the manor was ransacked, Helen Thomas heard the disturbance and went to investigate. Upon discovering the intruder, she was bound by the assailant and then shot in the head. Richard Thomas, who wasn't at home during the time of the robbery, returned a short while later. When he arrived, he was met at the entrance of the property by the masked intruder and was shot in both the abdomen and the left side of the face. Richard Thomas died from his injuries. His body was dragged into the main building before the killer set fire to the manor to try and cover up his crimes. Emergency services arrived to extinguish the blaze and once it was brought under control the following morning, the bodies of Richard and Helen Thomas were discovered. 
Forensic tests established that traces of blood found in the outhouse didn't belong to either Richard or Helen, so police believed that the culprit may have been shot or injured in the attack. Local hospitals and doctor surgeries were monitored, but no one was treated for any wounds associated with a shotgun. This led police to believe that the individual responsible might be on the run. A spokesman for the force said, Someone is harboring a dangerous criminal. I am appealing to them to come forward before someone else is killed. An incident room was set up, and at its peak over 150 officers were working the case. A solicitor acting on behalf of the family offered a £15,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction of the murderer. Although an investigation was carried out, little progress was made. Police had their suspicions, but a culprit wasn't found at the time, and the crime would remain unsolved for nearly 25 years. George Thorne, a neighbour of Richard and Helen Thomas, was interviewed in 2011 about how the murders affected the community. Uh, an old established family been living there for many many years and it was a great shock when we we heard initially a fire and um, that is what we were led to believe for for several days but it it, it really was a, a tragic shock to us at night time we, we we were in the in the dead of winter then in december we um I used to go round the cattle at night and uh, perhaps then we didn't have as many lights as we have got today uh, about the place. But we, we used to go into... Uh, I, we were growing potatoes then and we used to put heaters on with the potatoes and I, I often wondered, was anybody lurking about uh, in the corner of the shed because we, we just didn't know. Coroner Michael Howells, who headed the inquest at the time, was also deeply affected by the tragedy. I was certainly particularly upset by Helen Thomas's death because I knew her um, and um, she was a kind, gentle lady um, who'd never done any harm to anybody. And... Um, I knew the facts of, of what had happened, um, that she had been tied up uh, and her body burnt in the house. And of all people in this area who least deserved that, I thought Helen did. Most people didn't even know that Scoverson Hall existed because it's hidden away um, in, in a copse of trees. Um, and a lot of people said, well, where is this place? Um, and I came to the conclusion, and, and I discussed this with the police at the time, that really, in order for somebody to, to get at the Thomases in their home, they had to be somebody with local knowledge. Four years after the murders of Richard and Helen Thomas, on June 29, 1989, at 9.30am, Peter and Gwenda Dixon left their tent at Halston Caravan Park and decided to take a walk along a coastal path near Little Haven in Pembrokeshire. The happily married couple, both in their early 50s, were from Whitney in Oxfordshire and had often spent their summers at the park. Peter Dixon was a senior sales manager for a company in Aylesbury that produced house goods 
and his wife Gwenda worked as a secretary. As the pair wandered up the path, they were approached by a man armed with a shotgun. Around 10.30am, numerous witnesses heard five gunshots. Peter and Gwenda Dixon had been tied up. Their bank cards were stolen, along with Peter's gold wedding ring, before the culprit sexually assaulted Gwenda Dixon. He obtained the pin for the account before shooting them both at point-blank range in an execution-style killing. After withdrawing £310 for a number of ATMs, the culprit later went on to sell Peter Dixon's wedding ring for just £25. Peter and Gwenda Dixon's son reported the couple missing on July 2nd as they had not returned from their camping holiday. The campsite was searched and three days later, at 3.30pm, the blood-soaked bodies of the couple were discovered. After noticing a pungent smell, two retired police officers went to investigate and found the couple covered in some bracken and twigs off the coastal path, just above a 200-foot sheer drop onto the rocks. A press conference was held on July 6th and the investigation was led by Chief Constable Raymond White and Detective Chief Superintendent Clive Jones. The press reported that police believed there to be similarities to the murders at Scoviston Manor. A few days later a second press conference took place and a public appeal was made by both Detective Chief Superintendent Clive Jones and Timothy Dixon, the couple's son. Please, if anyone has any information that might help, tell the police. And to the persons responsible, you can't be happy with yourselves. Why don't you just give yourselves up to the police? How can you live with yourselves with what you've done to my parents? An artist's impression of a male cyclist spotted withdrawing money from the Dixon's account was also issued. He was described as aged 30 to 45, between 5 foot 8 to 6 foot tall, was suntanned and unshaven, riding a pushbike with straight handlebars. In spite of the thousands of calls being made to police and a detailed questionnaire being completed by all residents and holidaymakers close to the scene, police were still no closer to catching the suspect. In a jaw-dropping statement made by a local public relations and tourist officer who was interviewed on the radio, he explained that the murders were good for business. Alan Morris told the BBC that the television coverage was incredible. He said, I don't think we could have done a better marketing exercise if we had spent £200,000 because it displayed the coastal path and Preseli Coast in its full finery at the best time of year. He added, I know it's probably not the right thing to say, but I think next year we will find people saying, my goodness, we must go down there. Remember we saw it on TV last year. To no one's surprise, the public relations and tourist officer was reprimanded and the murders only served to keep visitors away from Little Haven. Resident Mary Whitewright, who remembers Peter and Gwenda Dixon, spoke to a news crew over two decades after the murders and questioned why someone would carry out a monstrous crime in such an idyllic place. The village became very muted. I seem to remember that it wasn't a very nice day. By the end of the day, the weather closed in and it wasn't very nice. And there was this absolute blanket of fear that had come over everybody because they were two normal, ordinary, well-liked people and how could anybody have done this to two people in such a beautiful place as the, as the Bluebell Woods? We didn't know who had done this, we didn't know 
what had happened. We didn't know, was there a murderer still amongst us? What, what was going on? Inhabitants of the park weren't the only ones to worry about how the murders would impact Little Haven. As rumours spread, tourists were too frightened to walk the coastal paths alone, fearing they might also be attacked. Malcolm Cullen, a former coast warden, recalls the measures taken to reassure visitors. There was some concern about the fact that people who wanted to walk the coast path, particularly Little Haven and St Brides, were no longer walking that section because obviously what had happened. And they were learning this obviously as they came into Little Haven if they hadn't heard it before. So the National Park decided that um, perhaps we could um, put some reassurance into walkers and two of us rangers were situated at Little Haven and um, there was a notice board set up to say that at certain times of the day if you wanted to walk that section you could do so with a ranger. What we'd actually do if we were confronted by anybody that was a sort of an aggressor, shall we say, I've got a clue, except run. And I know from my point of view, um, anybody in a remote dwelling, shall we say, I think took security of their dwelling very seriously at that time. They weren't quite so lax about things. And it, as I say, in my, in my instance, um, I had to put extra locks on the door of our house to satisfy the late wife. post-mortem examination revealed that Gwenda Dixon had been shot twice in the back and suffered a substantial blow to the head. When she was found, she was partially clothed. Peter Dixon's hands had been bound behind his back and he had been shot three times, in the back, torso and face. A few months after the murder, a cache of IRA firearms was discovered along the coastal path near the scene, which led to some speculation that Peter and Gwenda Dixon had been killed by gun runners, though this theory was later ruled out. Don Evans, a police superintendent who worked the case, later explained to the press that there were numerous theories that police could have explored, but they suspected a local resident was involved. We had drugs importers, we had IRA, we had a number of things happening which were thrown into the inquiry, but the suspicion always was that, that there was somebody local involved in, in, in the inquiries. During that same year, an expert in criminal profiling was called in to help police build a picture of the killer. Professor David Cantor studied witness statements, read the post-mortem reports and visited the crime scenes. In his report, the professor concluded that the killer was in his early 40s and was likely a local unskilled worker that had a criminal background. He had experience using a shotgun and had an understanding of survivalist techniques. Really gave uh, very clear indications um, of looking for a local small-time criminal who knew um, about the countryside, who, who, had a, who would use a shotgun. There was a lot of detailed information in that report that clearly pointed uh, to what the police ought to do about um, their investigation. Detective Chief Superintendent Steve Wilkins, who led a cold case review into the murders, explained to the press that although they reviewed Professor David Cantor's findings, it didn't specifically point to a single suspect. It was quite a close match to, to you know, somebody like John William Cooper, though clearly there was nothing within it which actually would have directed you to him as an individual. There was 1,700 people who had come into the inquiry as either suspects or persons of, of interest. John William Cooper did not feature on, on that list. There was quite a lot of people who also fitted in exactly the same profile. 
In July 1990, just over a year since the murder of Peter and Gwenda Dixon, the police made another appeal to the public for information, but the case went cold. On March 6, 1996, just as the sun was setting, a group of teenagers were making their way through a field near the Mount Estate in Milford Haven. Wearing a balaclava and armed with a knife and sawn-off shotgun, a man approached the five youngsters. Shining a torch in their faces, they were told he would kill them unless they complied. The teenagers were forced to lie face down on their fronts. He first demanded money from the group, but then went on to rape and sexually assault two of the teenagers at knife point. Before fleeing the scene, he fired the shotgun into the air. Due to the seriousness of the offence, an incident room was set up, but again the perpetrator eluded capture for his crimes. Detective Chief Superintendent Steve Wilkins explained to the BBC that despite the horrific ordeal, the teenagers were lucky to escape with their lives. If you look at five victims, it would be very difficult, certainly with a double barrel shotgun. Um, you'd, you'd have to reload at least on two occasions, and then with the, the, the probability of at least one or more of the, the victims escaping, though he did discharge the firearm. But I do think if they had, had have challenged him, I think he would use the firearm without any thoughts at all. During December 1997, Crime Watch Still Unsolved, a BBC television programme, included a reconstruction of the 1989 murders of Peter and Gwenda Dixon, which led to more than 400 calls to their helpline. The police followed up every line of inquiry, but again, the culprit evaded capture. Fast forward to 2006. Nearly 10 years had passed, and Operation Ottawa, a cold case review team, was formed. The remit of the operation was to review all evidence collected during the murders of Peter and Gwenda Dixon and Richard and Helen Thomas. The officers involved in the investigation re-interviewed witnesses, broke down every statement line by line, reviewed all crimes in the area, and consulted with experts in the field of forensics, psychology and profiling. The detectives spent the next three years reviewing every single piece of evidence and interviewing 1,700 suspects or persons of interest. The one thing Operation Ottawa now had over all previous investigations was the strides made in DNA analysis. During the middle of 2008, police had interviewed John Cooper over the course of a few days in connection with the crimes, though he vehemently denied any involvement. In some instances, he simply refused to answer any questions relating to the murders. John insisted that he was innocent, but police were almost certain he was the culprit, so they confronted him with new information in July 2008 during a recorded interview while John was still in prison for the charges of burglary and robbery. Just before we finish, John, yeah. in relation to this investigation, I've been interviewing you for coming up to four days now, okay? And I believe that you were responsible for the murder of Helen and Richard Thomas and also the murders of Gwenda and Peter Dixon. There's an opportunity for you now to tell us exactly what happened during the commission of those offences. All I can say is I'm sorry if you've got that opinion, but you're totally wrong. We are unable to get a count of what happened from Helen Thomas or Richard Thomas. 
or also Gwenda and Peter Dixon, are you in a position to assist us, to enable us to establish fully the sequence of events for both of those murders? Uh, no, I'm not a mass Despite the belief that John Cooper was somehow involved in the murders, he was released from prison at the start of the following year as DNA testing on the items found at the crime scenes was still being processed. It was during April 2009 that detectives received the first indication from the forensic analysis that John Cooper was involved. Fibres from a pair of gloves found in some hedges were linked to John along with a 12-bore shotgun found near his home, which was marked with flecks of blood that belonged to Peter Dixon. A pair of shorts was also discovered in his possession. However, after police unstitched the hem, they found DNA from Julie Dixon, the murdered couple's daughter. Police believed they had originally belonged to Peter Dixon, so John Cooper was arrested. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. 
Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. After his arrest, in a hearing that lasted less than 10 minutes, Dressed in a white shirt and jeans, John Cooper was brought before Haverford West Magistrates Court on May 14, 2009 and spoke only to confirm his name and to hear the charges he faced. John was then taken to Long Larton Prison in Worcestershire. He was interviewed a number of times by police and was asked how DNA from Julie Dixon might have got onto the shorts found in his possession. Have you any explanation to give as to how that blood could have innocently appeared on the shorts? I really do not know. As I said, my wife sourced the shorts. Maybe from Percy, maybe from a shop. I don't know, whatever she sourced. Uh, more worryingly is, my son used to take my clothes whenever he wanted it, and that would be more of a worry for a father. John became animated when police again presented evidence that pointed to his involvement in the murders. You're making things try to fit to John Cooper, and it's bloody annoying. We go, there's friends and evidence, it all comes back. You know, I just, young lady, you, I once you, said, you're trying to make things fit. I tried to put you and give you information that you can check. You choose, you, you all, and your colleagues, and them in there, choose not to believe. Towards the end of May, the prosecution informed a judge at Swansea Crown Court that due to the large volume of evidence that needed to be considered, the case might take longer than usual to prepare for. With over 200,000 pages of evidence, it was agreed that the trial would last approximately three months and a timetable was approved. The trial was due to start in March 2010, however after a number of postponements it would begin the following year. The trial for the murders of Richard and Helen Thomas and Peter and Gwenda Dixon finally began in March 2011 at Swansea Crown Court. John William Cooper was being charged with both the murders at Scoverston Manor and the murders on the coastal path near Little Haven. In addition, he also faced five counts of attempted robbery, the rape of a 16-year-old girl and serious sexual assault of a 15-year-old carried out in March 1996 in a field near Milford Haven. John pled not guilty to all charges. Judge Mr Justice John Williams presided over the case. In an opening statement, Gerard Elias QC, working on behalf of the prosecution, explained that numerous forensic clues tied John Cooper to the crimes. Evidence discovered included a balaclava, a fleece jacket and shotgun which John was said to have discarded, along with distinctive clothing fibres found at each of the crime scenes. Gerard Elias QC, addressing the jury, said that without a shadow of a doubt, all the items in question pointed without doubt to the defendant's involvement. He added, are these links mere coincidence? Unhappy chance? Or are they links which plainly are not coincidences and show without a shadow of doubt that it was the defendant using these items and gloves who committed these offences. These offences were committed by a local man. The prosecution say that the evidence is plain that the local man is the defendant. 
During the second week of the trial, the jury was shown footage of John Cooper when he appeared on the TV show Bullseye in May 1989. Although the jury didn't hear audio from the game show, John had told the host that he enjoyed scuba diving. A still image from the footage was compared with an artist's impression by multiple witnesses of a man spotted withdrawing money from Peter and Gwenda Dixon's account. Dion Mather, who was working in a bakery on June 29, 1989, witnessed a man standing outside a branch of Lloyd's Bank in Pembroke for around 15 to 20 minutes. The witness told the jury there was something unusual about him. When I would look at him, he would look away. Dressed in shorts or cut-off trousers, the man was said to have had scruffy grey hair and was riding a push bike with an old-fashioned straight handlebar. An additional witness, Nicholas Elliott, was driving past a branch of Nat West in Haverford West during the early morning of July 1st when the Dixon's card was again used. The second witness described the man as well-tanned with collar-length hair. The individual was also seen riding a bike with straight handlebars and looked like he spent a lot of time outside. The following week, on Monday, April 11th, the court heard from Raymond Smith, the former proprietor of Pembroke Jewellers. He had been asked to review transactions during June and July of 1989 and discovered that he brought a 22-carat gold wedding ring from a Mr. J. Cooper on July 5th. Although he couldn't recall the person who brought in the ring, the witness told the court that he obtained the ring for just £25 and most likely sold it for scrap. Wedding rings didn't sell well second-hand, he said. Handwriting expert Hilary Pritchard reviewed the receipt for the ring and said there was a high probability that it was John Cooper's handwriting. The same expert had also reviewed evidence collected from John Cooper's home and identified that writing on a shotgun cartridge box likely matched that of Helen Thomas, who had been murdered along with her brother. On Tuesday, April 12th, the jury was taken to the coastal area near Little Haven where Peter and Gwenda Dixon had been murdered. And the following day, the jury visited Scoverston Park, where the home of Richard and Helen Thomas had previously stood. When back in the courtroom, Gerard Elias QC, acting on behalf of the prosecution, described the details of the fire and stated that there was clear evidence that diesel had been used as an accelerant. The jury heard from Neil Evans, a farm labourer, who confirmed that John Cooper had frequented Scoverston Manor on occasion to buy hay from Richard Thomas and had once seen John arguing with him over the price. The next day, on April 14th, the jury heard from John Cooper's son who appeared via video link. Adrian's relationship with his father had broken down after he left the family home at 16 and had had hardly any contact with his family during the early 90s. Adrian, who had since changed his name, described his father as very strong, fit and aggressive. He recalled that his father kept various belongings in a locked room of the house. On one occasion when his father was away, he managed to gain access to the room and found a metal cupboard which contained valuables including trinkets, coins and burnt jewellery. He described finding a briefcase full of silver ornaments and on another occasion he found a sawn-off shotgun in a vice. Amongst the jewellery and valuables, he found a collection of photos though he didn't recognise any of the people in them. John Cooper's son told the court that his father would sometimes go out with a shotgun on a piece of string hidden under his jacket. When shown a photo of the shotgun, the witness explained that he recognised a clip attached to the gun as it was previously a lead the family used to walk the dog. 
under cross-examination by Mark Evans QC, who was acting on behalf of the defense, Adrian was told that his testimony was not truthful. Addressing John's son, Mark Evans QC said the witness was making up his testimony and just telling the police what they wanted to hear, but the witness replied, I've got nothing to gain from that. I don't even want to be here. On Monday, April 18th, Ian Johnson, a forensic scientist who specialised in firearms, explained to the jury that he'd examined the shotgun that was said to have been used in the murder of Mr. and Mrs. Dixon. He said that various amendments had been made to it, including attachments that allowed a strap to be used. A screw was missing and the stock and barrel had been shortened. A collection of firearm components which had been discovered at John Cooper's property included a screw which had distinctive markings that suggested it belonged to the same shotgun. The firearm had been found near a hedgerow, close to where the robbery had taken place in Sardis, for which John Cooper had been convicted in 1998. The following week, the jury heard from Roger Robson, a fibres expert called by the prosecution. Fibres had been removed from the crime scenes using tape which had then been sealed. Sweepings from John Cooper's shed had also been taken, and these sweepings were found in a glove and balaclava discarded in a hedgerow near John Cooper's property in 1998. Fibres from the same glove matched fibres found on the clothes of Peter and Gwenda Dixon and in the foliage used to hide their bodies. Blood matching the DNA profile of Peter Dixon was also found on a pair of shorts owned by John Cooper, along with fibres from a sock worn by Richard Thomas during his death. A set of keys was also recovered from John's property that belonged to the Thomases. Flecks of blood belonging to Peter Dixon had been found on the shotgun used in the robbery in Sardis, and fibres from a pair of gloves were also identified on the shotgun and the clothing of the rape and assault victims. Roger Robson, the fibres expert, told the court that he had never worked on a case with as many links as this. As John Cooper had used the same tools to carry out his crimes, police were able to link each of them together and trace them back to John. The court was shown interview footage of the two girls who were raped and sexually assaulted by John Cooper. They told officers that they were walking home through a field when they were cornered by an older man. One of the girls said, He came up in front of us and was shining the torch in all our faces. He put the gun under the torch so we could see the barrel facing us. That's when everyone started to panic. The group of five teenagers, three girls and two boys were made to lay on their stomachs. John demanded their names and ages. He singled out the 16-year-old who was separated from the group. When they returned, John had told her to get dressed and not tell anyone. The victim, who was now an adult and present in the courtroom, was hidden behind two screens to protect her identity. She bravely recalled the events and said how she described it in the initial interview was how she remembered it. Further interview footage of the young girls was played, which detailed how John sexually assaulted a 15-year-old in the group. After touching her intimately, he said, If you tell anyone, I'll kill you. I know who you are. As John left the scene, he fired his shotgun into the air. The police were notified as soon as the teenagers returned home. John Cooper gave evidence at the trial, and throughout his testimony he maintained he was wrongly convicted of the burglaries and robberies for which he served over ten years. He was shown the shotgun found in a field near the scene of the robbery in Sardis, 
which was covered in traces of Peter Dixon's blood. He denied that the weapon belonged to him. Though a shotgun was fired in all the crimes, no cartridges had been found. John was asked by Gerard Elias QC, acting on behalf of the prosecution, about the severity of his arthritis. John told the court that he was often in severe pain and experienced limited movement in his left arm. His son had told the court earlier in the trial that his father would often go on evening walks armed with a shotgun. John said his son was mistaken. During the closing statements, Gerard Elias QC appealed to the jury that they use their collective common sense when reaching a decision, and reminded them that John Cooper was convicted of a series of serious offences. Addressing the jury, Gerard Elias said, We submit to you that the defendant murdered the Thomases, the Dixons, and he was the Mount Estate rapist and robber. The evidence against him could hardly be clearer. The truth is now as bright and clear as day. Mark Evans QC, acting on behalf of the defence, explained that John Cooper was a soft target and said there had to be some concept of fairness in the trial. He told the court the prosecution had been theorising and speculating about the possible motivations for the killings and he said there were dangers in theorising. Mark Evans said the individual spotted withdrawing cash from the Dixon's account was not a man of Mr Cooper's build or appearance in any way at all. He went on to add that although the DNA evidence was compelling, it was not a certainty. He said if other evidence compels you in another direction, no amount of DNA evidence should sway you. After a 10-week trial and three days of deliberations, on May 26, 2011, the jury of six men and six women found John William Cooper guilty of all charges. He was given four life sentences and was told by the judge, you are a very dangerous man, highly predatory, who, but for advances in forensic science, may well have continued to evade capture. The murders were of such evil wickedness that the mandatory sentence of life means just that. As the judge spoke, he was interrupted by John who exclaimed, this is utter rubbish, it's rubbish, that jury's been on the internet, I don't blame them, Evidence has been kept from that jury. As John Cooper faced a whole life order, he will most likely never see the outside world again. After the hearing, Timothy and Julie, the son and daughter of Peter and Gwenda Dixon, spoke to the press outside the courtroom. Well, this cannot take away our loss and our grief and the pain of people touched by this man's violence. We can have some closure now the person responsible for these terrible atrocities has been served justice. To many, our mum and dad are just another two faces that happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But to our family, they are irreplaceable. There are no words that come near to explaining the impact that this has had on us. An integral part of our family is missing. Mum and dad were loving, gentle and loved people. They were also a charismatic couple that invested a lot of time and energy in their local community. They had wisdom, humour and were compassionate. Even after two decades, their absence is immense and still painful. So on behalf of all of those affected by this man in these three cases, 
Uh, we'd like to sincerely thank uh, DCS Steve Wilkins and his team and all the officers over the years. Uh, we, the family of Peter and Gwenda Dixon, anyone else touched by John Cooper's violence, and indeed all, all the people of Pembrokeshire uh, owe a debt of gratitude to these officers of Diffic Powered Police. Because of their tenacity, dedication and hard work, these communities will be that much safer after today. We would also like to sincerely thank Gerard Elias QC and the rest of the prosecution team and the Forensic Science Services for delivering and enabling the prosecution case. The Thomas family issued a statement through the police which read, As a family, we would wish that justice is done for Richard and Helen. Memories will remain with us all forever, but we hope that we will now be able to remember the happier times more than the very sad ones. Even in the face of the evidence presented, through his time in police custody and during the trial, John Cooper still denied he had anything to do with the murders. Detective Chief Superintendent Steve Wilkins spoke to the press about John Cooper's behaviour when being questioned. John Cooper is somebody who thrives on, on control. Certainly in his early interviews we had episodes of him uh, facing the wall, um, lying on the floor in the fetal position or, or e exploding with, uh, with anger. So where are we now? After John Cooper's sentencing in May 2011, a suspicious number of deaths in Pembrokeshire were re-examined to identify if he was involved. In 1976, a farmer and his sister had suffered a violent death, and a widow in her 70s had also met a grisly end in the 1980s. Florence Evans was found fully clothed floating in a bath at a home in Rosemarket. Detective Chief Superintendent Steve Wilkins, who led Operation Ottawa, told the BBC, At this moment there is nothing concrete that connects him to any other offences, though there are a number of interesting issues which have come out during the trial. Florence Evans was mentioned in John Cooper's defence evidence, as she was friends with both John and his wife. John would visit her home and do odd jobs around the house and in a small holding she owned. Relatives of Florence Evans regarded her death as suspicious. She never took baths, and there was no hot water in the property at the time. Police also examined the possibility that John Cooper was also involved in the deaths of Harry and Meghan Toos in 1993. The couple had been murdered in their farmhouse in Lanharry near Bridgend. They had both been shot in the head and covered with carpet. The scene suggested they were expecting a visitor, as they had laid out their best china on the kitchen table. Jonathan Jones, Harry and Meghan Toos's future son-in-law, was charged with their murder in 1995, however he was released a year later on appeal. A person or persons responsible for their murder has never been caught despite numerous appeals to the public. In June 2011, Detective Chief Superintendent Sally Burke said, Discussions have taken place in order to explore any connectivity with the Pembrokeshire offences and the murders of Harry and Meghan Toos in Lanharry on July 26, 1993. At present there are no plans to link the investigations, though information is being assessed and researched by detectives to identify any potential relevant lines of inquiry. The detective chief superintendent continued, if anyone does have any information that they feel could assist the police concerning the murders of Harry and Meghan Toos, then they are asked to contact Specialist Crime Investigations on 101 or Crime Stoppers 
on 0800 In September 2011, John Cooper launched an appeal against his sentence, though this was rejected the following year. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. If you would like to support They Walk Among Us and receive ad-free content and other extras, please go to patreon.com forward slash theywalkamonguss. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.